0: bereavement room is a podcast for our community faith and culture featuring representative voices from across the uk and i am your host kulsima ali hi i'm hatim aldawi and you're listening to the bereavement room podcast hello i'm priya ahmed and you're listening to bereavement room podcast hello i'm Bushra malik and you're listening to the bereavement room podcast hi i'm tanya hardcastle and you're listening to the Bereavement Room podcast.
1: Hey, what's going on? It is Sly King and you are listening to the Bereavement Room podcast. Hello,
0: I'm Lydia Kirkland and you're listening to Bereavement Room Podcast. Hello, I'm Abigail Chewett and you're listening to Bereavement Room Podcast. Hi folks, welcome back to Bereavement Room Podcast. If you're joining us for the first time, you can find me on social media. The handle is at bereavement on Instagram and Twitter. This is the penultimate episode of the third and final season. Before I announce today's guest, I want to give you a quick recap. Around about two and a half years ago, I was seeking support for the death of my brother, I went to counselling. Unfortunately I was discriminated in those sessions. I was then further alienated and othered in the room when I shared my experiences of bereavement in a room that was dominated by my white counterparts. I was told that me creating a Deaf Cafe BAME would be excluding uh, the white community. Of course um, this didn't go down well with me and uh, it led to a a lot of feelings of frustration and anger and activism actually because we fast forward and here we are three seasons into bereavement room. Uh, It was a difficult thing to go through I think when you're grieving so hard and then to just have to over explain yourself and not feel seen and witnessed and be discriminated just because of the faith and the culture and heritage you come from just not nice uh i think you know people that are from a marginalized group have to put up with enough as it is it doesn't surprise me that we don't seek therapy if uh, the right type of therapy isn't accessible in the first place uh, for me i've learned from these experiences uh, a caucasian therapist just will not cut it for me Um, I've learned a lot from these experiences. I wish I didn't have to go through them, but I did. Uh, I've come a long way since then. Bereavement Room has hosted a array of voices. I'm thankful to all of my former guests. Uh, from all communities across the diaspora where we have covered some hard-hitting topics from looking after vulnerable family members healthcare negligence disabilities mental health in the student population faith culture heritage uh, friendships to the economy um it's been a real whirlwind i have to say uh the past uh two and a half years it really has and i've appreciated all the love and support i have received particularly for this third and final season because if I'm brutally honest for me bereavement remended at season two in December 2020 but because so many of you wrote in and said look we would love a third season uh, I was happy to commit to that as long as we could try and keep the podcast up for at least the next three to four years which we've managed to do we've got here to the finish line the finale if you like and um it's i've got a smile on my face right now because i am happy i'm happy that this organic journey that began has ended organically too um so i'm smiling but we i've just feel like i've come so far and i've really appreciated people's support from all over the world you know I've got listeners from hong kong to peru people have donated and um we've managed to deliver this third season and it stays up for the next three to four years honestly i'm absolutely chuffed about that but if you didn't know you could make a donation my gofundme page is still open uh you can find it in my link tree on social media or i will tag it in the episode show notes um if you can please make a donation i'd love that because then it means i can keep funding um to keep it up for as long as possible Is there a potential for bonus episodes? Yes, but I can't guarantee it so I'll come back to that in the next episode which is uh, the final episode where I'll do a quick wash up. So let's get stuck into today's episode. I'm going to introduce my guest to you. Now there's been a lot of talk about decolonizing one's mind body and soul not easy work that's grief work that's trauma work requires a lot of unpacking and unlearning and um possibly also cutting off relationships with people too it's not an easy thing to go through when you're having to like decolonize your whole entire life and so I'm really really pleased to say that today's guest is writer and author, uh, poet and activist uh, Maya Kalaria, she's an Indian woman born in the UK, her mother died um, when Maya was only nine Maya speaks about grief, misogyny, racism and the colonial trauma she experienced as a result of her bereavement. She is committed to decolonizing her mind, body and wider society, connecting to her indigenous roots and she welcomes uncomfortable conversation and believes strongly in healthy conflict resolution as a powerful tool for healing the divides between communities i love that do we do enough of that having uncomfortable conversations, because that's what bereavement room was all about, having uncomfortable conversations in safe spaces, because you have to remember something. When you're having uncomfortable conversations, you need to do it with the right people in the right spaces at the right time, because not every space is gonna be welcoming, and not every space has the capacity to hold or hear the message that you wanna deliver. It will not always land, because I can tell you from doing bereavement room, uh, my message hasn't always landed. Uh, with people hasn't landed well because sometimes we don't want to hear the truth you know there's so much truth in having an uncomfortable conversation it can throw up a lot uh, if you're willing and ready and open and doing it go for it do it now she has written a book called half woman half grief uh she speaks from a place of truth trauma and healing so for anyone who's experienced grief of any kind personal collective environmental and colonial um please do go check out her book she vulnerably explores the desperate sadness Fury and shame she experienced on her healing journey and welcomes others to do the same. Maya shares so openly and vulnerably about her experience because, you know, her identity was taken away from her as a child after her mum died. And as she put it herself, uh, very honestly, she lived a very white life. So to everyone that's tuned in, thank you so much for listening. As always, just thank you, thank you, thank you. I am your host, Kulseema Ali. So Maya, you've joined me in the room to talk about decolonising and child bereavement. Your mum sadly died when you was nine years old. Um, and we're going to delve into everything uh, further in the conversation. But for context, my listeners love to know where people are from and their background. And I, I noted that you grew up in Yorkshire. Uh, interestingly, my dad spent the first half of his life in Yorkshire when he first came to Britain as part of rebuilding the UK after the Second World War. So like, mm. I, I'm sure you know that Yorkshire was known for industrialisation and rebuilding the economy yeah yeah but it was also a place known for racism um so I'm curious to know I know you're in Bristol at the moment and you're moving soon but you spent the first half of your life growing up in Yorkshire what was life like for
1: you growing up there it was strange um, I think because I didn't know any different at the time, I felt it was normal. But when I look back now, it was actually quite horrific because there was so much racism. Um, so one of my first memories was um, walking through town with my dad um, when me and my brother were very young. I must have been about five or six years old, and um, this white guy just casually um, shouted, "All right, packy bastard!" Um, as as he walked by and just carried on walking and my dad sort of passively waved. I guess he didn't exactly want to be beaten up or anything. So I can see now that it was like the best thing for him to do, but I just remember being absolutely mortified and just horrified at the inhumanity of it. Um, and then another very prominent memory was when I was standing outside the car um, in my school uniform, just outside where we used to live. And uh, this guy, this white guy across the road um, just shouted packy at me. And I must've been about six or seven. And I just remember thinking at the time as well, like how, you know, what just happened and I don't belong here. I'm not wanted here. He hates me. Um, And now I look back and I think, God, like for an adult white man to say that to a little girl is so horrific, but that was so normal back then. Um, And so it was, yeah, very predominantly white and in school, you know, I was paired up by the other kids in the class with the only other brown kid in the class. My name was uh, mispronounced by the head teacher for the whole time I was there. It was Maya um And so <laughs> all of these things, I think it's, I know, it's ridiculous. All of these things, they just like chip away at your sense of identity and your soul, you know, because it's like this continuous reminder, like, You don't belong here. We don't want you here. You're inferior to us. Get lost (laughs) sort of thing. Mm. And as a child,
0: you just want to be accepted, don't you? And when people are throwing racial slurs at you on the street and, you know, being singled out like that in school, it's very isolating. Um, I can definitely Mm. relate to it. Uh, I grew up, although I live in London, I grew up in a predominantly white area and I went to a predominantly white school and there's microaggressions around your name and when they can't be bothered to pronounce your name correctly, mm. um, it's just really frustrating and that stuff follows you. It really um, impedes on your self-worth as well and then how you feel as well when you go into the workplace or further education. Brown people always being picked last for stuff yeah. or for... I don't know the school play or whatever and oh my god you know like does Mary always have to be a white girl
1: Mm -hmm. and Mary wasn't Mary wasn't white in real life that's the (laughs) fucking irony (laughs)
0: exactly Exactly. that used to really irritate me at school because it was just like why can't I be Mary but anyway
1: (laughs) you would have looked a lot more like actually Mary did you know than any of these people but that's another topic entirely. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Different podcasts, different podcasts. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> it's good to connect with someone on this, though. Like, uh yeah. There's not many people I can talk to about that. So most of my sort of friends from Indian or Pakistani Bengali communities grew up in quite diverse spaces. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's nice to be able to connect with someone on this. And I'm, I just want to say, I'm really sorry that you went through that experience, but I can definitely relate. Like I had similar experiences too. Um, I think with Yorkshire, it's really interesting because I've never been there and I really wanted to do a trip there with my dad. Uh, Cause mm. it was such a huge part of his life when he first came to the UK, but it he came to the UK in the fifties and he lived there through the 50s and 60s so I'm guessing for you growing up there in the 80s and 90s yeah not
1: not much changed not much changed yeah in (laughs) fact it was better probably but god knows what it was like when your dad was there because it must have been horrific
0: (laughs) yeah he, he talked about the police a lot um that the police were just brutal in those times yeah. up in the north. But my dad internalized a lot as well. He spoke about it. But at the same time, if I pressed him too hard on it, he'd sort of just go silent and be like, mm. Oh, this is irrelevant now. Why do you want to know? I think it was too painful for him to kind of re relive or re-talk about that all the time. Um, yeah. but I was just curious. So thank thank you for sharing about your early life in Yorkshire. No problem and and you talked about you talk a lot about on your um platforms uh the decolonizing your mind body and soul is very important to you um what does that actually look like for
1: you practically sure that's a good question um it it's kind of a multi-layered approach i think yeah there is the spiritual and there's the emotional decolonizing and then there is the practical so um it's, it's a multi-layered approach. The practical side, I would say, is um, kind of really things that one might not um, connect to decolonizing, but it's very connected to decolonizing. So things like recycling um, or um, making sure you're not putting too much money into um, huge companies that exploit um, underpaid labor in South Asian or Southeast Asian or East Asian countries or any other country which has been colonized. So, um, just to kind of like stop the chain of um, exploitation that still remains after colonization, um, things like sweatshops, you know, for these huge companies that still remain, you know. Um, and so like I try and buy things off um, places like Depop um, or, Vintage stores or charity stores to, just to try and stop that chain. Um, and I think a huge part of decolonizing is also um, honoring and respecting Mother Earth. So, environmentally, those avenues are better as well because you're reusing clothing, you're not kind of over consuming. So, that's one of the the biggest things. Um, another thing is um, even decolonizing skincare. So, um, one of the biggest wounds that I believe people of colour have is around our skin, um, because that's what people have, white people have used to abuse us and to um, sort of be prejudiced against us. And so reclaiming my love of my own skin um, through beauty, through my skincare. So there's a lot of products out there that are deliberately designed for white people, Mm. and their skin can actually tolerate a larger amount of um chemicals, whereas um, brown and black skin, actually we have a higher sensitivity and we hyperpigment a lot more easily. So that means like um, scarring and things like that, which is very hard to reverse. So I've just been learning about that so that I can look after my skin, preserve its kind of beauty, and be proud of my brown skin. Um, so that's been really powerful in reclaiming that, and I felt much prouder around it. And the the last thing I want to mention about decolonizing is I have a larger nose than people uh, around me just because, you know, I'm Asian, I, you know, we have larger noses in that part of the (laughs) world. And um, I've always hated it because, you know, everyone around me has smaller noses and I felt like I was really hideously ugly and I hated my profile. And so one thing that I make sure I do is I I go on places like Pinterest or on um, Instagram and I just make sure I look at. Other women with large noses just to normalise that in my own mind, mm. um, especially women of colour, so that I'm reclaiming my own physical appearance and my own beauty, mm. um, and divesting from whiteness, basically.
0: Mm. Yeah, I mean the Eurocentric standards of beauty are everywhere, and yes. that stuff is really dangerous. They don't no. really, they don't really show you women of colour, and you know they're feeding into that you know the skinny Caucasian perfect feet you know these features yeah. are, are perfect um, and everything else is not as horrible or uh, just mm. awful and there's so much work to be done around that uh, in the industry which I feel like yeah. is shifting a little bit because you see plus size models now um, yeah. as well um which is really refreshing I have to say. Um, but yeah yeah, yeah. going on Pinterest Hmm, maybe I should do that go on Pinterest Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah, as well I've never thought of that I go on Pinterest but not for that so that's really interesting (laughs) yeah Um,
1: like using social media to curate your own perception of the world and and your own beauty standards I think that's yeah reclaiming the narrative Mm, that's a
0: really big social media tip actually because a lot of us struggle with mental health and social media and it's really important to create your own feeds and who you follow so that you're you're getting the you're nourishing yourself with the good stuff
1: exactly um,
0: you touched a little bit on fashion and I just wanted to say like I have a good friend of mine who lives in Switzerland right She's surrounded by mostly designer labels and it's unaffordable. Mm -hmm. Online shopping isn't a thing in Switzerland. Paying by credit card is not a thing in Switzerland. So she often has to drive to France to go to like, you know, your usual high street shops like H&M's and Primark's and things like that. And so we had a conversation about the fashion thing because it does for example, in Bangladesh or India or Turkey, um, a lot of these garments, fast fashion, are made in yes. in Bangladesh and, and South Asia and other East Asian countries. Uh, we had a conversation about that and how we're consuming and how we do need to recycle. And that is a really great tip about going on Depop. I sometimes go on Depop, um, but also growing up, I spent a lot of time in charity shops anyway. Uh, but that's that's another story, really. It's related to poverty and my mum. But going to charity shops and Depop and stuff like that is really good if, you do, if you're slowly trying to kind of wean your way out of constantly buying new things from high street shops, but you still want to get your Zara or whatever. Yeah. Um, you can find those labels on Depop, and that is a good way to kind of recycle and reuse fashion. Mm. The only thing that I would say is, though... In South Asia, like the garment industry, particularly in Bangladesh, it's given so many women jobs and independence. Mm. And I know that child labour is being exploited, but like the garment industry is like off the charts in Bangladesh to the point that it's helping out of GDP and stuff. And the Mm. the economy is booming um, and they need those jobs. So I I just kind of, if we stop buying are we saying not to stop fully buying fast fashion, but just recycle by going on Depop and charity shops? Because it's kind of like, if we stop buying fast fashion, these people become unemployed, right?
1: Yeah, it's true. And I think it's about, you know, um, not stopping entirely, but changing the way that people are treated over there. And the way that, Mm. I think it's, because the, there's so much demand um then there's so much exploitation like that's the problem it's not that the garment industry the garments come from there I think it's the way that people are abused and treated so yeah the um, poor
0: working conditions, conditions
1: labor, bad pay it's more like they you know keep making garments but like somehow it needs to be reformed and mm. and I, and I Yeah. And I I don't know whether keeping buying from places like H&M is actually going to reform it or whether we need to think of new avenues to somehow get that reform happening. Mm. So I I wish I had like an answer for that, but I completely agree with you. I often have thought that myself, like, well, if I stop, then, you know, people will be without a job. And is that worse? And then it's just this. And the thing is, it's not our responsibility as a consumer. It's actually the massive companies that we it is our responsibility, and that's another form of individualism where it's about us and it's all down to our morals and our responsibility. Actually, it's their responsibility because they're the ones exploiting, they have all the power. So, they really need to maybe we just need to sign loads of petitions and just keep pushing, you know, for, like protesting against it and things like that.
0: Mm-hmm. It's a
1: hard one, it's a really hard one to know what the answer is, really
0: hmm it's definitely lack of accountability on on their side these mm-hmm. companies have huge amounts of money and they could yeah. improve the working conditions if they wanted to easily easily you know they've got so much investment and money to their disposal and uh it's this i don't think it's very transparent um, no the last time they did the campaign People didn't really talk about that part. They just talked about stop shopping in fast fashion. And that's where I got a little bit concerned. So, yeah, it's a little bit of a grey area because, you know, the garment industry in those countries, it's just booming and the women have got independence and they've got jobs. But obviously it's not fair if they're working in horrible conditions. And it it puts us in a tricky place then because um, we want to do good.
1: Yeah. And it's not fair that we're in that place because we've been put in that place. Which is just capitalism all over,
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, just really awful, really awful, um, well, I hope that was insightful for all of our listeners. obviously, we're here to talk about grief, and you know that on my podcast, I talk about how grief is very white, canceling is very white, psychotherapy, it's very white. I talked about that in the prior seasons, I know that you're also decolonizing grief, you know, you wrote your book as well in honor of your mum. Would you say that grief is very white, particularly in this online grief community, which is quite small, particularly on Instagram. Yeah. It's, you know, everyone that's running their accounts, but the majority of these people are our Caucasian
1: counterparts. Oh, definitely. Um, yeah, like it's a very white space. Grief is very white. And I guess we are, I guess we do live in this majority white country, but I I do think there needs to be more, when when it's, People of colour experiencing grief, especially people of the diaspora. Um, but I will go as far as to say, as people that are still in, in, the, in our homelands, you know, because there's a lot of grief there from colonisation. Um, mm. We have such a deep, deep rooted, multi layered grief that a lot of British people don't understand mm. because they've been here and they haven't had their lands recently. Colonize and they don't experience racism, and so like we have so much intergenerational trauma, intergenerational grief. So when we, for example, with me when I lost my mum, I didn't just lose my mum; I lost my doorway into my culture, into my homeland. You know, it was so multi-layered. Whereas if someone white British lost their mum, well, you turn around and this you're living amongst loads of white people and you know, you're treated relatively without racism here. So, you know, it's, it's just a different story for when someone, of, a person of colour experiences grief. So it's really important to, to sort of talk about that and to have more voices in this space.
0: Absolutely. Um, a lot of the services are also tailored to our Caucasian counterparts and Mm -hmm. I don't think they run into as many issues as we do when we're accessing these services Um, Mm and they don't really have that intergenerational trauma completely absolutely right um Mm -hmm. and uh somewhat coming into this space has been a bit uncomfortable because you know I have spoken about that but I've spoken about it matter-of-factly which doesn't always land very well and I don't always get the likes for stuff like that um and you know people don't receive the message well but I have to keep doing what I'm doing because of like the discrimination that I experienced yeah
1: um I mean for you you I'm really glad you do because um, and I'm glad that you're matter of fact because this isn't a very matter of fact culture this is a very overly polite passive aggressive culture um and there's not a lot of healthy conversation where it's just direct and truthful and honest there's a lot of denial and a lot of over politeness. So, um, I think that's why people can't handle the truth. Um, yeah. Cause you're not attacking anyone. You're just saying the truth, but often people act like, you know, you're like attacking them and it's, it's just because they can't handle direct, honest truth, you know?
0: Yeah. And I, you know, to anyone that's listening, cause I do have a lot of white allyship here and other listeners. Um, I I am not personally attacking anybody. Uh, At the end of the day, it's important to feel seen and witnessed. And there is a large demographic of people that do not have that privilege of of feeling seen and witnessed. So it is important to be, you know, direct, I think, and straight talking, because I, I am not, you know, by no means trying to discount anyone's grief. I think it's come off as I'm discounting the Caucasian grief, which is, uh, I, I don't that's not what I'm doing I'm just saying that uh, there's a extra layer of discourse when talking about grief from the perspective of black and brown people um I was just curious to know like you know your mum died when you were, you were a child quite young and like I know you're unpacking a lot right now and you'll forever be unpacking mm. uh, you know what you know that's a really large chunk of your life that your mum hasn't been there you know and trying to find out more about your identity and going into this blended family.
1: Like how do you manage your mental health? Well, I didn't manage it very well for a long time. I had CPTSD um, due to grief um, and then subsequent abuse from certain family members um, and neglect, um, which, you know, when when someone says abuse and neglect, um, often people think of the worst case scenario where like someone's like severely, sexually abused or um, physically abused. And I wasn't, that didn't happen to me, but I did have narcissistic abuse and I did have emotional neglect, uh, which very much impacted me, especially because I was a grieving child as well. And that grief was never addressed. So for years, I actually, the only way that I um, managed my mental health was through writing. So I had journals. um, I just wrote in my journals all the time and there was so much rage in these journals because i couldn't uh, express my rage any other way but i'm really glad i had these journals because if i hadn't have had anything i think my mental health would have been so much worse um so yeah and then as i got older i did approach counseling um i trained uh, well i did a foundation certificate myself in counseling and I became a hypnotherapist but i also pursued um psychotherapy And I've had like many um, sort of energy healing sessions as well. Um, And I I talk, I I think one of the biggest things for my mental health is just being really honest and open um, about how I feel and just being in integrity all the time. So I don't engage in anything, any conversation or anything where I don't feel like I'm being myself. I've had to curate my life heavily, which means I've had to cut a lot of people out. Mm. Um, I don't have people in my life who I feel aren't supportive of me um, or my all the things I'm passionate about, um, and that has been hard. Like I have had to cut out a lot of family members, but my mental health has been better as a result because they were very, um, like, verbally abusive or critical. So it's been a hard journey, and and uh, many people I think might not to cut out the amount of people that I cut out, and I wouldn't necessarily suggest it to everyone. That's what I had to do personally.
0: Yeah of course and I think if we have toxic family members um, you have to protect yourself uh, um, whether they're friends or family members sometimes you just have to make difficult decisions uh, I can definitely relate to that I think there's quite a lot of people from the South Asian diaspora that have experienced estrangement in one way or another um, and that, and that's hard that's really difficult but good for you and I'm really happy that you know your mental health has since improved and uh, it's important to reflect on that actually because we have covered estrangement and abuse a lot in this season and it seems to be quite common in the South Asian diaspora actually uh, having toxic family members and what it means to have these boundaries in place or you know whether we continue to have them in our lives moving forwards um, so I appreciate you sharing that with us today. Um, you talked about secret diaries.
1: Yeah, I had secret diaries and I was journaling and I never showed them to anyone.
0: Okay, interesting. Yeah, I had a secret diary as well. I had a little lock on it and a cat on the front.
1: <laughs> oh, I had locks on my diaries too.
0: <laughs> you know, there's so much power in journaling, right? Um, yeah. That's really interesting. So you've been journaling as a child,
1: Yeah, yeah, that was the thing that kept me going. It seems for grief, a lot of people do journal, they
0: find it uh, an outlet.
1: Um, Very therapeutic, very cathartic, and you don't have to share your feelings with everyone.
0: Yeah, it's a private space for you, and you can be as raw and honest as you like. Exactly. Um, (laughs) So you have joined me in the room to talk about your mum. Mm. Um, Now, your mum died when you were nine, um, talk to me a little bit about what colonial trauma looked like for you as a nine-year-old child.
1: Yeah, so, so she, I, I guess the easiest way to put that is that she was my connection to my Indian culture. Um, not only was she, I was, a, I, you know, I was a mummy's girl. I absolutely adored her. She, she um, practiced Hinduism. Um, she had like a little shrine in her um, cupboard at home and like she was close to her family and uh, her and my dad spoke Gujarati, um, not all the time, but like quite a lot. And she cooked Gujarati food and food is so, so incredibly important um, mm. in our identity and, and who we are because it's from our land. Mm. And um, And so she was like my link to the Indian world, to to my culture, my ancestry, my identity, especially it was so important because we were in that white racist space. Um, And so when she died, um, I don't think obviously at the time I knew it was colonial trauma. Um, I do now, but there was this grief of losing her as a mother. There was a grief then also of losing my connection to the motherland via my mother. And that's colonial trauma because the fact we're even living on this land is because of colonialism. Mm. And so we've already had our roots completely um, like um, se- severed, You know, um, deliberately we've had our cultures decimated. I mean, it's obviously since colonialism, there's been a lot more violence in- into violence. So I'm not discounting that, but I think so many issues came from colonialism and uh, white British colonialism to be, to be exact. And uh, so then, yeah, I lost my connection to my motherland because my dad was very c- colonized. And by that, I mean, he, he didn't think he'd experienced any racism. He believed he maybe was white. Like um, he didn't like talk about our identity. He's from Uganda and I think he's so traumatized from being a refugee that he just shut everything out. And so like there was just nothing for me and my brother to like hang on to apart from like every now and again seeing our relatives in London or Bedford. And so it's colonial trauma because it was like once again being being disconnected from the motherland, you know, Um, and just like uprooted and yeah, it was, it was just so multi layered that grief.
0: Mm. and so as a child what did that look like for you I mean if you can mm. sort of go, go back in time because your mum had leukemia did she, was that right or yeah
1: so she had she had leukemia so actually I'm 34 right now and she was 34 when she um oh, okay. when she had leukemia and she was just she just turned 35 when she died so this is a really poignant year for me um because I'm really seeing more of you know, what she must've gone through and, and in the context of age as well. But um, yeah, she was 34, She it started with pains in her wrist. Uh, she went to the doctors, they thought it was anemia. And then um, quite quickly, they realized it was leukemia. And then she was in Sheffield Hallam Hospital. Um, and it was all very quick. It Like, I think it was summertime that she got ill and then it was December the 5th that she actually died. So it was really, really quick. And my brother and I were at school um, you know, for autumn term during that time. Um, we weren't told about the severity of her illness. Um, I understand that my family, firstly, they're not, like many families, they're not um, equipped to talk to people about this, especially children. Uh, grief is like pushed away, pushed aside. Uh, death, you know, the possibility of death, it's like denied. And so we weren't told that she could die. So it was it was like, oh, she's she's gonna be fine. She's gonna be fine. And then, oh, she's died. You know, oh, and the gosh. shock of that, like the shock oh,
0: gosh.
1: of of like just not having a clue, you know, is I still have that in my body. Like that's something I have to actively heal every day, especially because my family then never dealt with the grief and never helped me and my brother grieve. So there was just like layers and layers of like neglect there. How, um, how did How did you... Deal with it though as a child? Like, what did that look like for you in your mind? Mm. So, another thing that, so basically, I didn't really deal with it. So, after she died, uh, because that was near the Christmas holidays, um, we were just swept out of our school, had to say goodbye to our friends, and then went across the country to Bedford to start another school and make new friends without actually being allowed the space to grieve or anything so i just had to get on with it and like actually meet new people and grieve my old life um very very quickly i was powerless and so that grief just kind of like um solidified within me mm. and i just and then obviously then like later on that very year i came back because my dad had got with this woman this white woman and then i had to like start a new family and she's the mother of my school friend so I had to have I was part of this like new blended family with white people who were once my friend and now like my sister. And it was like really messed up. Um, And I was so busy, like having to adjust and adapt to these like terrible situations that it took me four years to actually like properly break down. And even then it was just for about a week. And then again, about four years later when I was at university, when I first went to uni, I grieved again. But it wasn't until like about two years ago that I actually like grieved properly and like really like cried like every day, you know, like properly sat there and went through all of the motions. So that was when I was like 32. <laughs> oh
0: my it's been a lifelong
1: God. journey. Yeah, it was pretty bad.
0: I just want to go back to your best friends. Your dad married your best friend's mum at the, the new area in Bedford that you moved to.
1: In in Barnsley. So, oh, so in went, Barnsley. Okay. To, so I was swept away to Bedford with my brother to live with my grandparents. And then all this time, my dad was like developing this relationship with this woman. And so then we had to come back to our old school, uh, which was actually in Wakefield, but we lived in Barnsley. And so we had to come back make friends with our old friends again, start our old school again, like within a few months of moving to Bedford. So it was like we moved like twice within my mum, the year of my mum dying.
0: Oh my gosh, that's such an upheaval for a child. Yeah,
1: it really, really was. Yeah. so
0: Just really curious because what's that like when you... Your dad marries your best friend's mum. Did that cause
1: any rift between you and your best friend? Just being curious. Okay. It did. It did because she, so we were friends and it was all fine. And then when they married, her dad had had like a couple of affairs and she was a daddy's girl and he left and she was very heartbroken over that. And and, uh, I was like a scapegoat. Uh, for many people in the family but her as well and so she uh, bullied me for a few years and I kept that quiet because I knew that her mum would take her side Um, and uh, I confronted her like maybe about two years ago and she did apologize uh, for that time but yeah it was terrible it was terrible uh, for a few years. Did you go to your mum's funeral? Yes yeah that so it was on the it was like eight days after um, she died. Okay what was that like for you? Um like we saw her body um, and we didn't want to. So it was a really traumatizing experience. Like we saw her in her coffin. And um, I don't think I can like, it's like it's so hard to describe like what it's like to see your mum like lying dead in a coffin when you are nine years old. I, I don't think there are any words to describe like how horrific that is like, I, we didn't want to see her. We were encouraged to, and I, in a way, I can see that why they did it, because I think I needed to see the truth. Like I needed, to, you know, cause if I hadn't have seen her, maybe I wouldn't have believed that she died. But at the same time, I don't know how a nine-year-old's brain can like wrap their head around this, the gravity of seeing, someone who gave you life and was like your main source of nourishment and was supposed to protect you Mm. like Like, just then lying there yeah did your parents
0: explain to you what a funeral is and what that might look like
1: um I maybe briefly but not enough to cover what it was like Yeah. okay yeah Yeah. because I
0: I actually work in bereavement and that's one of the biggest dilemmas for most British families do Mm -hmm. I take my child to a funeral how do I explain what a funeral is how do I explain what a dead body is yeah yeah uh uh, and they find that once they've explained it and had those conversations it's easier on the child yeah uh uh, but there is a fear of taking the child to the funeral because they think it's going to scar them for life uh especially if they're not explaining what's going on or yeah. not prepping them at least so did
1: you feel unprepared or yeah yeah okay. my family aren't good at um explaining anything like that and death was not a topic that had even been discussed until she died and then it wasn't like they sat down with us and said this is like you know they didn't like emotionally support us through the idea of death um or like prepare us for even the fact that she could die you know it was a uh, yeah very very um unprepared and what was it like scattering the ashes? Did you get a chance to take part in that? Or yeah, was it... it was on my birthday. <laughs> oh, okay. Just, just when things like that, it's, it's quite a, the sort of bittersweet irony of, of everything. Yeah, it was on my 10th birthday. We went to Yorkshire Sculpture Park and we scattered her ashes there. And it was surreal. It was really surreal. And um, yeah, very strange. Like, because thinking like that was her, you know, mm. in this like like pot and then that was it she was never going to come back she was just dust it very weird um yeah
0: was your dad there with you with your brother like were you all there together
1: we were we were there together and that was a saving grace um yeah we and I think my uncles and aunts like I think um everyone who was like important was there I believe from what I can remember
0: what was bereavement support like as a child did you see a counselor at school or
1: no, nothing, absolutely nothing, like literally zero anything um if in fact, if anything, everyone avoided the issue. My dad and my stepmom didn't mention it. It was like she was my mum was just like forgotten about, and I think that's why there is so much rage, so much rage mm. in there because of of how they handled it and how society handled it, how my family handled it, like how culture handled it, handled it um because it was so damaging
0: there are a lot of uh black and asian uh or poc whatever label you want to use that don't access bereavement support um Mm. because they're not aware of it Uh, um and actually the reach is very low in comparison to caucasian families Mm. Uh, it's quite upsetting to see even now because i think that support's really important if you're bereaved as a child or any age really but for some strange reason we don't access that support uh Mm. or it's not flagged up to us or we don't even know what it is actually we don't know what it means to Mm. to get support um and that slightly irritates me because the reach is largely for the caucasian demographic and it's Mm. kind of
1: like well we're We want to heal as well. (laughs) Of course, and we have a lot of grief. Like, we've got intergenerational grief, we've got colonial grief, you know, there's a lot.
0: I find it really sad, and it does put a lot of rage inside of me, because I, I think it's very unfair, and I think they don't do enough to reach to yeah. get the support that they need um and I don't mean charities do enough to raise that awareness to be fair charities are quite white um yeah. so I'm I'm curious to know um did you get any counselling later then in life about your grief and yeah what did that look like like did yeah. you have a, a brown therapist
1: or no so I My racial trauma only came up last year. So I didn't seek out because I was so, because I'd been brought up by this white stepmother and I had a white stepsister and I was brought up in a white place my whole life. I didn't, I buried my racial trauma. So I didn't see the importance of like seeing a brown or black counselor until last year uh, when the racial trauma came up after George Floyd was murdered and I started speaking about all of that. So before that, I did seek therapy, but it was with white people who didn't really understand. I mean, they were, they you know one of them tried to and you know it's not for lack of trying i guess but like you know there was that massive uh i was gonna say discrepancy but there was a massive gap in understanding the context of grief for a brown woman um but they did you know that they did help and um in their own way. And I'm glad I got that therapy. And I'm a fan of like, you know, energy healing and things like that as well. I'm I'm, I'm a fan of like holistic healing as well. So I've had like energy healing uh, too. But now if I was to get healing, I would seek out a brown or black person for sure, or an indigenous person, um, because there's just that, that extra layer of like understanding and deep grief that we hold in our bodies.
0: Yeah, for sure. Uh, I mean, there's a stark difference, but then it also depends on the context of what your experience of the world is. Uh, yeah. Some people, some people may not want someone from their community. Yeah. Uh, um. So, was that through the NHS or privately or privately?
1: Yeah. Oh, okay. Privately. Um. I just, yeah, I just decided to, to, to. So, I've, I've sort of, um, I have. So, I'm a trained hypnotherapist, and I, I've got a foundation certificate in counselling, and I've worked in mental health for years um so i kind of had an idea of like how long the waiting lists were for uh, nhs counseling and so i just decided to go private um and have it quicker yeah it makes
0: sense so the waiting lists are very very long yeah. I think that's one of the biggest problems um and i i am not a fan of uh therapy through the national health service personally mm. i think if you can't afford to pay for it yourself and choose your own therapist I think that's great yeah um but I've had NHS counsellors I had an NHS counsellor after my mum died and we were just she was an Italian woman so we were lost in translation all the time oh, okay. uh, and it was just awful the experience and I lasted maybe of all of two sessions you did a year in counselling what was that like I've done a year in counselling
1: <laughs> it's an interesting one because yeah one of my tutors actually happened to be uh, a Punjabi woman so I was quite lucky that, like, that it was just me and her that were the only brown people in the whole, um, like, class, I guess. Um, and I think there is, now I look back, like, that would be so alarming to me now that there were so few, like, brown and black people in that class. But I think going through the counselling course, I actually had a, a relationship on the course as well. Uh, so that was... Uh, quite messy. So I met this person on the course and, you know, then we had to like attend the course and be together. And it was all a bit of a bit of a stressful situation looking back. Um, But I think I realized it wasn't for me um, that one-to-one style of like therapy. And like, I think I'm quite solution focused and I like to work differently with people than what was taught to me there so it it did give me like some practical listening skills, but it I realised actually at the end, it wasn't really for me. Mm. Um, yeah. Would you say the course is quite European? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think it can like just open up like <laughs> portals to like white fragility and like all these things, which I understand, like, you know, well, I don't understand, but like, you know, there needs to be a place for white people to like process their stuff. But I think when you're a brown person there, you just hold this whole other level of harm caused by these very people. And then how do you process that? Like you're I felt I was like the quietest one in the whole group because I'd been so abused in my life and felt so silenced in general that like I never really said anything. I was like a too afraid to. Um, and there were some people that just dominate the space, like a lot of the white males there. Um, they just spoke like so much in the groups and it was you could see the racial dynamics and the patriarchal dynamics playing out like all the time mm. so it, yeah it was it was problematic
0: mm. there's a lot of power dynamics in those environments mm. uh, I really struggled in mine so I did a year as well of foundation uh, cancelling but that was just because after my brother died, I went through a transition in my career because before that I worked in corporates for like 10 years. And then I took a bit of the break and I decided to do some volunteering with bereavement and I slightly changed my career. And now I work in bereavement. Mm. Um, But when I did that course, it was not intentional. I kind of just ended up there because I wanted to upskill a little bit, Mm. but I didn't know what I was getting myself into Mm. um, because I ended up at one of the elite schools but that's only because it's 10 minutes up the road Mm -hmm. so it's convenient and the whole room was just like housewives of whatever and whatever yeah (laughs) <laughs> and uh, you know they're all like really old white women or yeah. like really privileged white men with heads of services or whatever yeah. a council that you know uh happened to be there on their course and when diversity came up it rocked the whole class I think yeah. the class was comfortable up until yeah. a certain point and then the second half of that year it just went down the shits really because I brought it up but I alienated the whole entire class from bringing it up and yeah. like you know we had one one of my classmates was like yeah if I was on a bus and I had to choose between standing next to a black man or a skinny white man I would choose the skinny white man and she was just bloody awful this woman anyway mm-hmm. she's training to be a counsellor now but yeah. like there was just Very worrying. And it's just like weird little things like this because they live in a bubble world, but they want to be a therapist
1: now. Yeah, yeah. It's scary. It honestly, it was scary who they were letting in and what how many problems these people had. And I think a lot of people went on these courses to because they needed therapy, not because they wanted to be, not because they should have been a therapist. And I was just like horrified. I think that's another reason why I didn't go forward with it. Because I was like, these people need help. And they're like coming here and they're like um, offloading their problems. They're showing all their prejudices and their biases and they're not willing to like look at any of them. And then they're going to go and be, I mean, counsellors and psychotherapists in yeah. this world. It's scary. It's because it's they can afford to do it.
0: They've yeah. got the money to do it. They've got the money to be accredited. Yeah. Uh, um, and they... Uh, they're probably meeting black or brown people for the first time after accreditation or the one or two that they meet on their course yeah, yeah. Uh, they they probably never spent any time with them before well that's what yeah. I ga- gathered from when I was doing my course but I was completely I was like the devil in that class they hated me <laughs> I mean they liked me at one point until the second half because then I found my voice mm-hmm. and I just kept speaking up at every mm-hmm. turn and they just hated me. Like they'd stand in circles outside at the end of the course to like talk talk about what happened and that diversity was taking up too much of a time as a topic in the mm-hmm. class. They almost didn't want talk- to. Yeah. They didn't want to talk about pi- biases or diversity or you know, what their experience of the world is versus someone that's marginalized. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Uh, um, but I enjoyed The year, apart from the ups and downs that I had and lots of crying every Thursday evening, because you you do unpack a lot.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, But I would agree with you as a career, not entirely sure, because it is quite European. And I think... You know, I've heard some horror stories, which I won't go into now in terms of examinations and stuff. But, mm. you know, most of these people that mark you are like really old white men. And, of course, yeah. And uh, there's another layer to that as well. Um, and it's a lot of money too. It's, you know, you have to have like 30 grand in the bank to be able to, to really fully
1: complete your counselling. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, it's yeah, exactly. It's set up for white privileged people. Like it's 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 just part of the system. It's another it's another part of the this, this sort of um, capitalist colonial sort of or post or neo-colonial system. You know, it's you don't get a lot of black and brown people there because we the system is set up for us to be um, economically struggling. So like you you know we won't be found much on those courses, and when we are, we encounter a huge amount of problems because racism is still rife. That's
0: awesome. it's just yeah. yeah terrible and they don't do anything they know that and they're aware of that but I don't think they actively try to do anything the people that do set up these groups to try and tackle that to make it more accessible are the are the very few black or brown people that did go on to qualify and that you know went down that route and they they do try to make it more accessible by setting up their own sort of you know, black and brown therapy agency or whatever. There's quite a few yeah. of them around. Um, yeah, it's really sad, I think. It closes the door to so many people Um yeah. and it doesn't let us progress further down the, you know, up the socioeconomic ladder. Exactly.
1: Um,
0: I find it's impacted my life completely. Uh Everything always feels like a struggle. Yeah. Uh, um, so... Yeah it's good to talk about that because I don't know anyone else that has been on a counselling course that knows this it's still sort of not public knowledge it's only if you're in that world or have done some work in that world that you know.
1: Yeah and it also feels like blasphemy to even talk about it because it's like well at least at least they're trying you know because we still live in a culture where well-being isn't really seen Mm -hmm. as a priority so when when you know, when there is something like, even, you know, I know you talk about the NHS as well, and I agree with you. I think anything where there's like a helping profession, it's like, if you talk a- against it and you say, like, actually, it's corrupt, it's racist, it's this, it's that, p- like, people act like it's blasphemy. And it's like, no, you know, this is the truth. Like, sorry if that makes you uncomfortable, but it's the truth.
0: Yeah. Um, so. It doesn't bring me a lot of bonus points. I've since starting bereavement room uh it was uncomfortable I think for a lot of people mm-hmm. um to begin with and now I think a lot more people are on board but if I do speak about the NHS still I will get people trolling me and unfollowing me like social media is not a gift in many ways it's just mm. the power. um and i struggled with that because it's like they're invalidating your experience yeah. uh, um just because you haven't been impacted by it and healthcare is good for you does it yeah. mean it is for others and it isn't for millions of others you only yeah. have to log on to parliamentary health and Budsman and look at the cases that they're publishing and yeah, what's right. happened to a family so mm-hmm. it's i just think it's really you know i mean people need to talk about these these helping professions aren't always helpful.
1: Yeah. Well, apparently uh, institutional racism doesn't exist. So we're all just making it up. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's all just a dream.
1: Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Terrible nightmare.
0: Yeah. Well, it's a, um, it's a terrible nightmare for us. uh, Mm. um, And, I think we do need to come into these spaces and have more open conversations about our experiences in whether it's a year on a foundation course, or if we're studying to be a counsellor or the NHS. Mm. So what has social media been like for you? Because, you know, I only ever started bereavement room because I wanted to diversify a space based on the fact that I was discriminated when I went to talk about bereavement with Mm. a bereavement charity, because they didn't they couldn't fully appreciate my experience or they never heard of my experience from like a Muslim or Bangladeshi perspective or some mm. of the things that I had gone through after my brother died. Like, mm. what has it been like for you since writing your book about your mum and your journey?
1: It's it's actually, it's been both positive and negative. And I would say, um, so when I first started my new social media account, which is, I think it was last October, um, it was very, it was hard to be vulnerable about, you know, my book and my mum's death and um, grief uh, from my perspective as a, as a brown woman. Um, and so that was like a challenge in itself because I was like really opening up. Um, and then I started talking more about racism and decolonizing and sort of bringing the three into like one sort of Holy Trinity. Cause I, I do believe they're so interconnected. And, uh, that was really scary. And I actually expected to get a lot more trolls than I did. Like I, every time I posted like anything, I had like a, almost like a trauma response in myself because I was so afraid and like, just thinking like, Oh God, like some white person's going to attack me because of this or troll me. And funnily enough, the only trolls I've had so far are my own, two of my family members <laughs> oh, <laughs> who God. I then, who I then blocked, um, On my dad's side um who yeah who have been like not supportive um like from the beginning of the journey or they think they've been supportive but I haven't found them supportive at all so um yeah so those those were like the main trolls and I'm sure I will get some um and it's not easy to post even if I don't get trolls because um I'm sure you might have seen some of my posts but like it's very vulnerable and, and like angry, uh, you know, I'm usually talking about like decolonizing and like um, the damage done by the British to Indian people and other uh, people who of colour. So it's like hard, it is hard. It's not like um, an easy thing to talk about. And that's why I really respect and admire your work because you just put it out there and I've just, I love it because Because you're out there, like you give other people a space to also like rage about these things. And I just really appreciate it. So thank you for the work you do, because it helps me. I'm sure it helps so many other people.
0: Oh, thank you. I I don't know if it does, but I, it helps me to express or get off what I need to say. And there yeah. there, there is something liberating about that. Uh, but I get that whole vulnerable thing just as you're about to post because you're like, this is a personal, you know, these are my thoughts, this is what I carry, yeah. this is yeah. what I live with, and I'm going to put it out there for the public to hear and see. Yeah. Uh, that is
1: scary because social media is a scary world. <laughs> yeah. You're just putting it out there for like anyone to like criticize or interpret or troll. Like it's a really, it's very brave actually. It's a very yeah. brave thing to do.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, it, I don't think it's always come easy for me, but I think I definitely found my voice up in the last two, three years probably. Yeah. And I think also with deaf, like, you know, that's it who <laughs> I just don't care anymore like I've had so much death in my family that I just don't give a two shit. so yeah. I'll just say what I need to say and because that was my experience and sometimes people will get it and uh, sometimes people won't um yeah and, and I, I don't want to say it is what it is because it isn't but uh, it's just kind of accepted it for where it is at and These spaces to talk are important, like doing this podcast so people can talk about their funerals or what they found difficult or, Mm -hmm. you know, their rage and their anger. It is really important because I never had those spaces. Mm -hmm. And to be able to create my own space has been really liberating. Um, So I just want to come back to you because I've just talked about myself. (laughs) That's great, that's great. Uh, um, I how did you you know how did you set boundaries with your family members then following the
1: abuse that you went through i mean do you have a relationship with your dad or um it's a very fractured relationship um we barely talk um i actually asked him recently just um if we could just text because we've had such upsetting conversations um like okay so last year when i was 33 he sent me and my brother a text very kind of like relatively short saying um you know more or less like i've i've been reflecting and i've realized that i never supported you or your brother in um when your mum died uh, i hope you can forgive me lots of love dad <laughs> and it was like at first i was like oh wow you know that's really huge and then i was like hang on a sec he thinks that he can just send a text after years of trauma that we've been through and neglect and like abuse. And he just thinks he can get away with sending a text and everything's fine. So I sent him an email just like laying it all down, laying like just being like, well, now that you're open here, I'm going to tell you everything. And uh, that's kind of when it became more fractious between us. Um, so I do talk to him, but like very sort of hardly hardly at all and very short conversations because it's too painful he doesn't he's not able to hold it he's got like all this trauma himself he's I would say self-centered I love him to pieces like that's never going to change but like it's too painful for me to have that sort of energy where I'm not seen and I'm not like valued for the pain that I've gone through and, and the work that I've done um, so, yeah, like putting boundaries down with family has been really painful. And, you know, it, the pain is still there. I have pain around it like every day, you know, uh, different family members. I've, I've actually blocked quite a few out now. Um, I don't talk to my stepmom at all. Um, I don't talk to my stepsister at the moment. Um, I don't talk to my dad's family because they've all been pretty abusive or enabled other people's abuse of me. And so I had to cut them all out. And it's been, yeah, it's been really painful however I will say it's freeing and liberating at the same time uh, because the work I do and the work I will continue to do it requires freedom and liberation because I'm fighting for freedom and liberation for all and I can't have members of my own family trying to like silence me like that's not love that's not support for me so it's like well if you're not going to love me I can't really, I'm not really going to be part of this. Cause what is in it for me? Like, what do I get out of this relationship? Um, and I think in South Asian families and many families, but I know South Asian families, I think abuse is often like wrapped up as love, you know, I've had people tell me they love me, but like stab me, metaphorically speaking, like in the back or kind of uh, try and control me. And they've called it love. Oh, I'm only doing it because I love you. And I'm thinking, well, no, I think you're doing it because you love yourself or you're afraid or you're afraid of what the community will think about you if I talk about these things. And that's another thing about social media, which I forgot to mention. I've been very open about my family on there. I haven't named any names, but I think that's what pissed them off especially my dad's side, because I, I've been very open about the abuse I've gone through, and they did not like that at all. Um, mm. And that's been a real point of contention. And instead of, like, being silenced, I've ended up putting boundaries down with them because they've I've been silent for years. Um, so, you know, that's not gone very well for me. Em- emotional
0: abuse is really high in south asian communities um that's something that i can relate to they do wrap it up in love why do they do that i don't understand because it isn't love
1: no but i do i do and you know i probably would say this uh because of the works i do but i do think colonial trauma like 400 years of um like abuse belittling uh cultural decimation um like genocide you know a a people will turn on their own, you know, a people will like control their own. Um, And the trauma is incredible, you know, within our family lines and our lineages and our nation. Um, And we're fractured, you know, we, we, there's interviolence as well and like all these things. But I do think, you know, if you're abused for that long, Uh, by another people, you will turn on your own families. And I think that's why there's so many toxic dynamics within South Asian communities because we've had so much abuse um, from colonialism. Mm,
0: Yeah. There's there's so much minoritizing or marginalizing within our own. Yeah. Um that yeah, I I think all roads lead back to one road. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. It's really sad though. And it's mm-hmm. our, our generations that have to unpack it because <laughs> our parents and grandparents aren't taught to unpack these things.
1: No. They don't even know what mental health or cancelling is. So No, and I don't think they could handle it. Like I actually think, I think I heard this thing. And this This is not to excuse them because I think there there has to be accountability too. But like I heard this theory that like um, the people who experience the trauma firsthand, they cannot even deal with it, and then they pass it down to their children who are still unable to deal with it, and then it's usually the sort of third generation that might have a more privileged life, but they carry the emotional intergenerational trauma. And so then we get like people saying to us in our own families, like, oh, you're so sensitive. Oh, you're making a big deal out of nothing. I had to d- go through this, this and this. But it's like, yeah, you did, but you didn't deal with it. So now you passed it to me. So now it looks like I've got social anxiety or I've got like, I'm shy or I've got like panic attacks. But that's because even though I live a more p- privileged lifestyle, um, I, I have the trauma in me that comes out at any given point. <laughs> you know we're walking around with trauma
0: yeah yeah. (laughs) like it's our our entire community is i think and sometimes we don't even realize it
1: exactly exactly yeah
0: there's a lot of work to be done um and it's nice to see that this work is happening you know with our individual spaces and other initiatives that are being set up it's quite refreshing to see um can i ask have you been to india yes you you said you have Uh, haven't you did you as a
1: child or I went there for the first time when I was 15 and then again when I was 21 and then again when I was 31 or 32 sorry okay Uh, you're katrati, right yes yeah okay um so what was that like for you Well, the first, well, actually, because I'd internalized so much racism and colonial racism, I was ashamed. I was ashamed of India. I was ashamed of my people, the way that the poverty there, um, the lack of sanitation, the way that they treated each other, like the suffering. I was ashamed. And I I'm ashamed now to say that I was ashamed because I didn't understand why and what had happened to them as a people. Uh, like colonialism that had stripped them of their riches and their self worth and everything, so it was only this last time that I went there, which was when I was like 32, that I did the work while I was there to unpack that and to reconnect with Mother India and be like, oh my god, what was I thinking? Like, and what has been put into me in Britain from you know, and even people living in India, you know, have colonial like they they put British yeah. people. So it's not just yeah, living in Britain, but, you know, I could see it more clearly. And I felt really, I there's like grief. There's grief because all those years I spent hating or being ashamed of my people and my land. Um that's the, that's so much grief there, you know, that I'm now going to try and heal by reconnecting. And decolonizing, as and you decolonizing, say, yeah. your,
0: your mind, body and soul. Mm-hmm. You know, I had to ask how you decolonize your mind, body and soul. Because um, I've just been thinking about what parts of me that I need to decolonize. Mm-hmm. I mean, my parents, I wasn't allowed to speak English in my house, right? My mum mm-hmm. would always say English is for school. Uh, mm-hmm. If me and my siblings spoke English in the house, we'd get told off. Mm-hmm. Um, so we always spoke Bengali at home my Mm. mum did not integrate into western society she hated it and any chance she got she would go to Bangladesh so they would go to Bangladesh for six Mm -hmm. months every year um but they dragged me out of primary school a lot as a child not just for a week uh but for months to go and live in Bangladesh so I've I think my I don't know how much of me I need to decolonize so I think mm-hmm. this conversation is really interesting because I think it varies community to community and what your experience is yes. Yeah. Um. because I would say that I'm very in touch with my Bengali culture yeah. uh, that's not to say that I haven't tried to be more westernized I think when I became 16 17 I became very rebellious mm-hmm. I wanted to spend more time with my more westernized friends. Everyone's going clubbing, everyone's going partying. I don't want to be at home in my Asian garms, eating my Bengali food or doing Muslim things or like being with my very Bengali Muslim family. I want to be more westernized. And I think I went through that phase, but it's a shame because my mum's not alive to kind of see me come back to it after going through that phase of wanting to massively be westernized. Mm-hmm um because she she isn't alive to see that and she you know she was very she was a there was nothing westernized about my mum
1: I can't say that there was I love that I think that's so great like that she's stuck with that like it takes a lot to like live in a different country but like stick with your culture so vehemently I, I don't know if that's just because she, they, we went through a lot of rejection
0: growing up where we did. Mm. Um, but my dad was probably a little bit more integrated in the sense that I think he just accepted it for what it is. Mm. Uh, but he was in the UK a lot longer than my mum. Um, The women came later, so she came in the 60s, whereas Mm -hmm. the the men came a lot sooner and part of the industrialization generation. But Mm -hmm. I I do sometimes sit here and think what parts of me do need decolonizing, or have I gone through the phase and it's fine? Or am I unaware of certain things that aren't in my awareness yet? That I, like we talk about fashion, for example, um, where we're purchasing our goods. Fast fashion. I there's probably some work to be done there, but Mm. I say but every time. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, um, So I don't know if I'm denying it unconsciously. Um, I I think think it's it's yeah. Sorry, go on. on. No, go on. I don't know what I was going to say.
1: I was I was just going to say as well, like some other ways in that, like we are colonized or can decolonize in the things we consume in terms of um, like like Netflix and like the programs that we watch, I know even to the point like m- me and my partner. And um, so he's actually white Yeah, and we've been decolonizing together. But we, even when we were watching nature programs, so we'd stopped watching like loads of things because we realized it was patriarchal, colonial, white supremacist. So we stopped so many things and then we tried to watch nature programs. And even that was like, say for example, it was an, um, like, well, Turtle Island, but Canada and America, um, the settler colonial names for Turtle Island, but like, um, they were sort of um, colonial narratives. So white people who had settled there talking about indigenous animals and indigenous lands from like a colonial viewpoint. And like using terms like, um, you know, I can't remember the terms, but like very colonized terms, um, even in the narratives so for what these animals were doing, you know, like very sort of um, patriarchal, like, terms and i just thought we can't even watch this because it's such a colonized narrative from a colonizing people um so we we ended up like not even watching that like so there's so many subtle nuances in like what we watch as well Mm. yeah that's really interesting i do spend
0: a lot of time uh with netflix i grew up with a lot of tv because there wasn't much else to do um so so i watch a lot of little (laughs) house on the prairie in the waltons yeah me too
1: (laughs) which you is now when you think about like who they were and like the settler colonial
0: what a little half yeah. of the prairie for a yeah. hundred times yeah um, <laughs> um, I do think about that because you know I used to love things like Dawson's Creek or whatever yeah. and I started re-watching it recently but like how you talk about those wildlife nature programs I probably wouldn't even realize it because I think you need to be educated and informed on these things but what if you're not and you don't really realize it's happening to you
1: yeah exactly and I think it's a it's a work in progress I mean for me it's such a big part of my life it's like my main priority so I know I know like because I put so much work into it it's kind of like um easier to see these things because I think about it all the time Mm. Um, and I talk about it with everyone I know all of my friends and my partner and everything like so it's such a big part of my mind and, and who I am. So I think it is harder when, when you're not, but I will say that my friend and I, um, my friend Natasha and I are starting a podcast soon called the Decolonial Podcast, and we'll literally be talking about all of this and she's South Asian. Um, and so we're literally going to start that because we realize that there's like a gap for people mm. um in like what is decolonizing and like just we want to provide a safe space for people to like okay. explore that so yeah that is happening like really really soon okay and so sorry you said she was south asian which community is she from so i believe she's uh, from the pakistani community
0: okay so that sounds really great this podcast that you're doing i'm just going to say this because i'm saying it to everyone um are you going to invite guests on there yes yeah, so while you get a really wide experience, please invite ben- Bengalis to your podcast. Because I'm not saying invite me, but find there are so many talented Bangladeshis that talk about, uh, you know, decolonizing education, yeah. mental health, like in all aspects, art forms, food, you know, whatever, all disciplines. But for whatever reason, we're just missing in yeah. these South Asian conversations. It does my head in. And so, mm-hmm. and I think some of that is to do with you know, oppression and marginalising and minimising and and all roads back to colonialism. So I'm excited for your podcast, but do try and platform some Bengalis because that never happens. And I I think it'll be an interesting dynamic between a Bangladeshi and a Pakistani particularly uh, because that never happens. Um, So these things I think are really, really important as well.
1: I think it's hard to live in this world and like completely like, not engage in anything um mm. and I don't think that's fair on us either but I think it's just being conscious and mindful of like the context um and, and yeah. also notice like is something bothering you is, is something harming you like when you're watching it is it causing like negative feelings in you is it minimizing your experience like and then I would say definitely stop watching those things you know things that are like actively causing you pain mm. um yeah.
0: just yeah yeah, no, I completely agree with you. Uh, did you watch Have I Never Ever by Mindy Kaling?
1: No, but I have heard of it.
0: Yeah. So there was a lot of hoo-ha around that, and people were feeling uncomfortable, and so they they were starting to call things out. So maybe it is happening slightly, um, but then they also talked about the great things that Mindy Kaling has done, because she has done a lot of great things. Yeah. Um, but uh, I I think it's probably happening, but it's hard to get away from this stuff because it uh, is everywhere and it's so ingrained.
1: It's very hard. And I think it's really important to have people around you who are on a similar path, mm. because if you're on your own, um, it's really, really hard. Like we do need either a partner or a friend or a community around us that are on a similar path to just support each other because... We are a community. I think that's what colonialized, colonialism has done. It's made us all feel very alone because it's a very individualistic, dog eat dog, you know, pitting each other against each other world. And so I think to build those um, communities cross culturally, you know, um, is really important and like support each other through this and like share ideas um, or like different like programs or podcasts and stuff like that with each other. Like, hey, I found this decolonizing whatever book or something. Um, And I can see that happening. Like it really does. I can see it on Instagram, like there's so much going on out there, Um, but it is hard and it's overwhelming. Like, where does someone even start? You
0: know, Mm. which kind of leads me on to the next question. How do you sustain yourself then whilst you do this work? Because it is a lot of work and it's quite heavy and it requires a lot of unpacking. So what is sustaining you and your self-care?
1: that's a really good question um food i would say is one of the first things it's so important to me to have like delicious meals i'm not one of those people that's like oh i'll just eat for sustenance i have to be like emotionally like satisfied and happy after each meal because there's so little out there that like sustains me um because i see so much of the corruption like that i i need like something so food for me three delicious meals a day, whatever that is, even if it's like takeaway, like I will make sure I'm happy in food. Uh, routines, so I'll have like self-care routines, whether it's like like skincare. So that's another thing I've decolonized my skincare, um, which is a whole other topic, but like looking after my Indian skin, making sure like I feel good um, and I'm not using products that are made for like uh, white skin because it can like, uh, white skin can't tolerate, it can tolerate a lot more, Uh, chemicals whereas asian skin hyperpigment so i look after myself i look after my skin and that makes me feel good about myself um having um I, i meditate a lot um i will um be outside a lot like i'll be in nature a lot um so i'll and there's a cat that comes around a lot and i spend a lot of time with her like i think animals are really really important um so, yeah, there's quite there's a few things. But, yeah, there's not like a huge amount because I think we're living in this world that is so tainted by of mm. white supremacy and colonialism. You know, sometimes I do burn out and I'm just like, oh, God, I, what am I supposed to do? <laughs> do, you, do you ever have days in bed
0: where you're just like, you know, this is very debilitating. I've just got to have a day in bed.
1: I'll have days when I'm, so I don't spend days in bed because I find it hard to sleep in in the evening. Like I like to have like a very separate night time to daytime, but I will have days when I'm like really feeling like quite depressed and despairing. And, but I'll allow it because I think it is a depressing world. Like, you know, it's not an easy world. Like this is, this is the world we live in right now. And so it's like, of course you're feeling anxious or depressed or despairing because look around I love the
0: skincare thing. I spend a lot of time in my skincare as well and finding mm-hmm. natural products and ingredients um, to work with because it is true. Our skin is different to white skin and yeah. our reactions yeah. are different and we have to treat it differently. What, you know. So we're, we're getting to the end. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Um, we yeah. can't unpack everything in an hour, um, <laughs> but I think we touched on a lot. And yeah. so it kind of brings me to ask you, if you're comfortable you know what was your mum like share a memory of your mum a little open reflection
1: so she she was and um, you know I I probably am biased but I have heard this from other people too but she she really was um amazing she um she was very confident not that I'm saying confidence is an amazing quality um because I think people I'm not overly confident and um I'm still worthy but she was she was um very smiley very confident um she said it like it was she wasn't afraid to speak her mind um she had very different style and i really appreciated that so she had like short cropped sort of boyish hair and she wore like um quite masculine clothes at times and so in the 70s and 80s she loved tuxedos uh like boiler suits like she was quite cutting edge with her fashion and i always remember how amazing her fashion was and in in my book um half woman half grief like i talk about her like in the introduction a lot well the whole books about her really but like who she was and how much she was so supportive of me so she um I always knew that I wanted to publish a book so when I was like seven or eight years old I told her I was like this is what I'm gonna do and she just like unquestioningly like supported me to the point where she sent my work to publishers when I was like eight years old you know Mm -hmm. she was just so supportive of like who I was and what I wanted to do I loved tigers and I knew that tigers were becoming extinct and I made her um, like send money to them and she was like happy to do so. And it was just like, she, she, she treasured and valued me for who I was and I will never forget that. And that's the anchor now. I, I think back to her and like how she treated me and I anchor myself in that um, to, to heal from all the abuse that I have received. So yeah, she was wonderful. Do you have pictures of your mum? I do. Yeah, I have a lot. Oh, that's lovely. And of both of you together or? Yeah, yeah. There's some of us together and and I
0: treasure them. I really do. That's lovely. Really, really nice. Mm -hmm. I think pictures are important. Uh, I spend a lot of time with pictures. Um, My dad Mm -hmm. died a year ago. So I created a folder in my phone of like videos and pictures. uh, Mostly of just me and my dad. (laughs) Um, So yeah, I think... I think those things are very important. Mm, they are. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you so much for sharing.
1: How can people find you on social media? So I'm um at Maya Kalaria, M-A-Y-A-K-A-L-A-R-I-A. Um, and on there, um, there's like a link tree in my um in my introduction in my uh what do you call it? Insta um Just on my Insta page, basically, there's a link tree and it's got links to um, the book and the ebook and also all the other um, work that I've done around grief, decolonizing and anti-racism. So there's a bunch of videos and podcasts. Um, And yeah, even my feed posts, like there's a lot of work there that I've done. So there's like a little library. Um, So if anyone wants to know more about decolonizing, um, there's quite a lot on there. Um, that they can access, but also um yeah, grief and in the book, which is really, really important to me too.
0: Absolutely. Half women, half grief. So to everyone that's tuned in, do check it out. I will link everything in the episode show notes. So you can also find the links there too. Um, We now come to the gratefulness challenge, which I like to end on gratitude. It's definitely an important part of my life and how I live my life, but it's not to find a silver lining. So you can also say what you're not grateful for. Um, I'm going to go first, if that's okay even though i haven't really made anything um i just appreciate these open conversations i think it's good to have conversations that are uncomfortable i think you've also said it uh, as well that it can lead to resolution or just naming it yeah um yeah i mean starting bereavement room has been a roller coaster journey this is the final season Uh, we're getting to the end now I hope that everyone that has supported the podcast listened to it has enjoyed it taken love light whatever it is that you need from it Um, it's definitely been very healing for me it's been a learning curve too Uh, it's also been very sad because you know my dad dad died halfway through series one which I wasn't expecting so the course of this podcast definitely took another road Mm -hmm. um but yeah just grateful for having these open conversations and just finding so many you know people across the diaspora to (laughs) come on here and chat with about a very taboo topic um that I feel like we've normalized in this space anyway maybe not in the rest of the world but uh in this space and actually I do have a worldwide listen so wherever in the world you are but uh yeah just grateful for these moments really and connecting with people and although I said social media can be a bit of a curse uh it's also a gift because it it has connected me to people like you Maya so Mm. thank you very much and I will pass the mic to you (laughs)
1: thank you Um, and I literally feel very very similarly um so I, you know, having spent a lifetime not feeling like I could speak about these things, as I'm sure, um, you know, so many of us have experienced, I I really feel the healing in this conversation. I, fe- I feel it's he- helped heal me a little bit further. Um, and I would, I'm so grateful that like, you've provided the safe space for me to be fiery and speak my mind about the cross-section between grief and racism and colonization. And that to me is, it just like heals me on this other level. And I'm grateful for the work that you've done um, that has been like fiery and open and allowed me to be fiery and open too. And I also would say, like you said, social media, it's connected me to people like you. It's actually, I've made so many friends in this past year. I've lost a lot of friends, especially white friends. But I have gained so many friends, especially people of color, that I I just um, yeah I feel very blessed to to be to know them, and they've helped me and my career. Like I've got job opportunities from it, you know. If it, it, I'm so grateful for that as well. Wow, that was Maya Calaria, not
0: Maya Calaria, whoever that is. So much resonance there about the microaggressions around non-anglicized names growing up in Britain. Um, for those of you that felt triggered, uh, sending you a lot, a lot of love because I realised that today's conversation would have thrown up a lot for people that are tuning in that have been at the receiving end of racism in this country. Now I'm going to project a little bit. Um, There was a lot that we covered there in an hour and a bit few things that it threw up for me personally Uh, as Maya was talking about looking after her Indian skin it reminded me of my mum who was against chemical products because it used to irritate her skin so she was a, a big fan of essential oils and organic soaps all of her stuff was shipped in I remember as a child I used to think my mum was ordinary, boring, why doesn't she wear makeup like the other mums, why doesn't she like these heavy moisturisers like the rest of us and I didn't get it but it was because my mum had sensitive skin and she didn't like those products and and often she would tell me you need to clear your dresser, those products are not good for you, you, you need to use more oils. And, um and it's because she had sensitive skin and the penny sort of I knew this but the penny kind of dropped a little bit more for me as Maya was talking about how she takes care of her skin because I was like oh yeah now I I feel like I understood my mum more and why she would get upset about that when I might use too many chemical products or spend money on that because she was completely against it so yeah that was that brought up a lot for me the skincare stuff interestingly um also you know we spoke a lot about racism i remember the last racist incident and when I say the last racist incident, I mean overt a- racism in front of my face that me and my dad went through on the street where we were racially abused and people came right up to our faces. My dad was not passive about h- his reactions to racism. Um, he was swearing at them in Bengali and English and told them to F off. And he always said to me from a young age, he always stuck up for me when we experienced racism or bullying that, When people tell you to go back to your own country you remind them why we're here you were there that's why we're here uh my granddad's villages um they had british samundari so they were taxed to death right and uh, my dad has a lot of pain and heartache and resentment about that and what his dads and granddads went through back then uh during british rule and uh Although my dad came to England a really long time ago, he's always really been clear on the the ramifications of uh, colonialism and the scar that it kind of left on his family. Uh, Because my dad was someone that made a lot of sacrifices and I think he was a gravy train for many because of um, how we were kind of drained of our resources um, in, in the part of Bangladesh where we lived because of these like British as um buddies that are just taxi for no fucking reason. Um bless him. Gosh I love my dad. He was great. But in terms of like consuming the Netflix stuff, so I'm just gonna like I don't even know if I'm in denial about this. But look right, I ain't gonna stop watching Dawson's Creek because I love that show or any show that was iconic that was centered around Caucasian teenagers in the 90s all right yeah I'm just gonna admit to it I'm gonna be brutally honest I'm not I enjoyed it I liked it maybe I need to do some deeper work about why I like that who cares I'm not gonna overthink it because I grew up with a very balanced lifestyle um did I grow up watching Bengali Natos on a Sunday afternoon with my cousins and my parents? Yeah, of course. Uh, did we listen to Bengali music? Yeah, uh, all the time. And, um,. The other thing that me and my dad used to do is like binge on Hut Buzzard. I don't know if any Bengali's that are listening know about that programme, Hut Buzzard. I think it used to come on Bangla TV or Channel S. So I feel like my popular culture and TV consumption was quite balanced, you know, a little bit of Dawson's Creek, a little bit of Hut Buzzard, a little bit of Bangla TV. Like, yeah, I think, I think I'm doing (laughs) alright. Um, so I kind of like I wholeheartedly agree with Maya. Right, you just got to be um, really aware of the context of some of these programs, and just be conscious of it, and know um, how it might be impacting you psychologically if it does, um, and how it might alter your thinking, and that perhaps then some of these things that we're being shown are not true. Yeah, you, you've you've got to be hyper aware about that. Um, totally. Uh, but I'm not gonna be, I don't think I'm gonna be, con- stop consuming some trash on TV that's centered around white people. Of course not. I'm just being honest with you. I'm being real, okay? Uh, you all love my realness, so I'm just <laughs> giving it to you. Hats off to Maya, right? Because she's dec- decolonizing her whole entire life. Every aspect of it. I'm decolonizing grief because I was discriminated and that's why I'm here. And that's why Bereavement Room exists. Well, folks, I think that's enough from me. I'm gonna love you and leave you. But before I do, there's one more episode. That's the final episode of this season of Bereavement Room Forever. And it's the wash up episode, so I hope you'll join me next month because I'm going to be laying down the law in the very last episode. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of casualties, put it that way. (laughs) So I hope you'll join me. Until then, take good care of yourself. I am your host, Korsima Ali.